as a kid, did you ever have a vision of what you wanted to be when you became an adult? I dare say that would be all of us this morning. For me, there was many things that I had visions of being, and I'm sure as you found, as I did, as, we, as I got older, that changed. Um, some of it remained the same, some of it did not. You know, for me, it started out as wanting to be a, a firefighter, police officer type of idea. And then it kind of shifted as I got a little bit older. I, I thought about going into the military, especially the Army. And then when I got to my teen years, um, that shifted again and got more of a vision for going into the full-time ministry. And uh, first was endeavoring to go to the mission field, and then God changed that um, recently to go into full-time pastoral ministry here in the States. But I dare say that when you made the decision to fulfill that vision of what you wanted to be, you underwent training, whether it was academic or practical, to become that individual you wanted to be, whether it was a nurse, whether it was uh, manufacturing and, or something along those lines, general labor. Uh, you became what you envisioned you wanted to be. And I would like to submit to us this morning from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, that, that God has a vision for us. And the vision that is this, that He wants us to be the church of God. Be the church. I'm not talking about a, a denomination. I'm just saying in, in general type terms, be the church of God. You say, Pastor, well, that, that's good, but... But how do we do that? We're kind of already the church already, and yes, I understand that, but as we're thinking about the larger context of God's plan for the church, we come now to the end of chapter 3 and really kind of sum everything that we've been talking about the past several months from Ephesians into this, this lump uh, sum statement here. Be the church of God. And I want to give us three practices that we can do to fulfill this. The first one comes from verses 14 through 19, and it is simply this. Acknowledge the need to grow spiritually. Acknowledge the need to grow spiritually. Paul says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign Creator is the one who allows spiritual growth. Paul finally gets to what he wanted to talk about all the way in verse 1, okay? That's why he says for this reason again in verse 14. He's, he's finally coming as Paul does. He's gotten off his rabbit trail, and now he gets back to what he wanted to talk about, all right? So he, wait, he, he didn't waste, but he used, he used what, 12 verses, 13 verses in his little uh, rabbit trail, and now he's back to it. He, he is back to what he wanted to talk about originally in verse 1. The reason he wants to talk about this is, is the great work that God did in bringing the Jews and Gentiles into one body. So the phrase, for this reason, points back to chapter 2, where he talks about, as we discussed a few Sundays ago, this idea we're no longer strangers and foreigners, we're now fellow citizens, we're now one in one body, we're built upon Jesus Christ, we're going into a, a temple, and we're a dwelling place for God. So with that in mind, Paul Paul engages in prayer here 
bowing his knees in a sign of humility to the, the all-sufficient one, the creator of, our, of, of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, using this phrase, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, points to not only God's creative capabilities and that He created everything, and there He is, for He is the Father of all, but He's also the Creator of all the families of the earth. Verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Everyone who has been born, whether physical, whether it's a spiritual being, gets their name from God. He is the one who started everything. He is the one who started this, this, this whole creation which we enjoy now. So from Him, all things maintain their life and have their being. Paul's praying to the Sovereign One who allows these things to happen. His request is not to just a, a pagan deity who could be worshipped with mere sacrifices. No, this is the, the one true God who created everything. Notice also with me as well that the riches of God enable spiritual growth. Verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. The phrase would grant here means to grant by formal action. So it's more of a, of a legal term. Paul wants this to happen. That's, that's the idea of the word would. He, he wishes that, that God would do this. He can't make this happen. Only God can do this. Only God can grant what Paul is, is asking for. Only God can grant spiritual growth. Which flies in the face of our world today, doesn't it? Many people are trying to work their way to God, right? Many people are trying to get to God through their own works, trying to attain even, even spiritual growth, be spiritual their own way, but Paul says that can't happen from my own work and effort. It has to be God. And it leads me to ask, are you relying upon God for your spiritual growth? Or are you trying to do it your own way? And Paul makes this request, as you note there, according to the riches of His glory. Paul is asking that God would grant this request for spiritual growth, not from meager income or resources, but coming from immense storehouse of value. We've seen this, this idea of riches of His glory before. If you hop back to Ephesians 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of His of sins according to the riches of His grace. Jump down to verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 7. That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. And we looked last week at chapter 3, verse 8. To me who am the less, le less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you don't have a poor God. <laughs> you have a rich God. A God who has immense value to give to you. Third, 
Spiritual growth is imparted by God's power through His Spirit in the spiritual life of the believer. I know that's a lot there. But that's, that, that's, that's verse 16, the rest of verse 16. To be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. The word might here refers to the potential to function in some way. So it refers to power. He goes on, he says, to be strengthened means to, to become strong. It's, it's, it's a, a purpose here. So Paul says, the purpose of my prayer is that God will grant you to be strengthened, to become strong with this power, this, this power to do something. How is it accomplished? It's accomplished through His Spirit. This is how the power is given. It's not through our personal uh, attainment, but it's through God's Spirit. We don't grow spiritually on our own. We grow through His Spirit. And we grow through, notice, our inner man. This refers to the inner being of a person. It's the the heart and the mind which influence the outer. Paul uses this this idea in 2 Corinthians 4.16 where he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So, so it's, it's the, the inner part of you, what makes you you, that can, which can respond to God's working. One commentator I read put it this way, the inner man is the focal point at the center of a person's life where the Spirit does his strengthening and renewing work. You know, the Spirit doesn't strengthen the outside. God doesn't work on the outside, although that, that we do see... Uh, Reflections of that, results of that. No, God works on the heart. God works on the inside. And therefore, his spirit, the spiritual growth that He wants to happen is His power at work through the Spirit in our lives. Fourthly, spiritual growth means that Christ lives in the life of the believer through faith. That's, Paul uses this uh, phrase in verse 17 to kind of the content of what he's talking about. What is, what is the content of spiritual growth? It means that Christ lives in your life. 2 Peter 3.18 says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So growing, growing means Christ lives in you. Growing means you know Christ as He lives in you. This, the word that shows the content, but it also shows the result. The result of the spiritual power of God through the, through the Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, is Christ in you. The word dwells here, may dwell, has the idea of to live in a locality for any length of time. We're not talking about a physical dwelling, but a spiritual one. And faith is the means by which Christ lives in us. Salvation is the prerequisite for the indwelling of Christ. Where does this indwelling happen? It happens in the heart. The seed of human emotions, what makes you you, that is where Christ is. That was where spiritual growth is truly defined. Notice also with me, spiritual growth is grounded in love. That Christ may dwell in your hearts for 17 through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. The word being rooted means to become firmly rooted or fixed. And love is where this takes place. So to become rooted is to become rooted in love, be grounded in love. It's the idea of there, as you think of 
a tree with deep running roots. Those roots are grounded in the, in the earth. And as they go deeper and deeper, the, the tree becomes stronger and stronger because its roots are, are gone deep into the ground. That's the picture here of being rooted in love. But he also says grounded. What does it mean to be grounded? Grounded means to provide a secure basis for the inner life and its resources. So not only are we rooted, fixed, if you will, in love, we're also grounded in it. That's, that's where we, we live off of. We live off of love. Our spiritual growth is grounded in that love. That's where we live. And what is the love here that is referred to? It is the self-sacrificial love which benefits others before it thinks of itself. It's love for God and love for others. And, and think of the context here. Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together in one body who previously hated each other. Right? There was anonymity. Jumping back to, to chapter 2. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hatred between the two, and now has created peace. And now has created the ability to love. As the Jews and Gentiles learn to exist in this new entity, they must do so by loving one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's how we grow spiritually. That's how people know who we are. We love one another. And we are rooted and grounded in that love. Notice also that spiritual growth increases the knowledge of the complete, complex vastness of the love of Christ. What Paul is doing is he's, he's continuing to list things about the spiritual growth and that one thing leads to another and being rooted and grounded in love leads to understanding the complexity and vastness of Christ's love. Here the word understand means to process or grasp for information, maybe able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The, the phrase width, depth, Height and length, okay. Points just to the dimensions, okay. It's, it's used, Paul uses this as a term to describe the dimensions uh, of what we can um, ascertain. You know, we, we know that this room is a certain length, a certain height, a certain depth, so that, that gives us a framework to understand. So Paul is saying that you'll be able to grasp, understand, comprehend the, the, the sheer dimensions of the love of Christ and how vast it is. And to know his love. The word know here has the idea of, of to, to understand not the process, but the significance. So we're, we're going through the process of understanding the love of Christ as, as we grow spiritually, but also to understand its meaning. It's one thing to process information, right? It's another thing to understand what it means. So we're understanding the, the, the vastness of Christ's love, but we're also understanding its meaning. And the love of Christ passes knowledge. The word knowledge here refers to wisdom. So to summarize what Paul is saying here, the love of Christ is beyond comprehension. And even if it could be understood, that knowledge would be insufficient compared to what could be understood about the love of God. 
And maybe I can summarize it this way. If you, if you remember your high school days, how many of you were good at math in high school? Okay, good. We all weren't. Um, think about entering into high school math and talking about geometry, trigonometry, pre-calculus, and calculus. And I know your head's starting to hurt already, just me mentioning those terms. All right? You knew that what you were learning was important, right? Kathy Blankman's going, uh, not at all. Okay? You knew that it was important to some degree, so you had to do it. But when you got into it, didn't you feel like when you learned one thing, the next thing you learned was totally opposite? It was totally new. It didn't fit with what you had just learned. And so as you continue to learn, try to learn all these different things, you kept learning more and more stuff. Oh, I didn't know about this. Oh, that, and then stuff just continued to pile on till if you were like me, you felt lost and just basking in all this mathematical formulas that were coming your way that you couldn't understand, but you knew it was real because you were being taught it. That's what the love of Christ is like. It's like entering into something, learning something about his love, but then the next day finding something else out and realizing there's much more to learn. And what Paul is doing here is he's not discouraging the Ephesians, and neither is he discouraging us. He's just pointing out that the love of Christ is so complex and so vast that it is magnificent to behold, and we should endeavor to understand it because it is his love for us. And therefore, we continue to, to advance in learning it as we grow spiritually. So that the result is that spiritual growth results in being more like God. That you may fill, be filled, the end of verse 19, with all the fullness of God. The word may be filled means to make full. And that the construction of the word is designed to show that this comes from an outside source. So Paul once us to be spiritually growing so that we can understand the love of Christ as He's dwelling on us so that we can become more like Him. The fullness of God refers to His moral character and excellence. The love of Christ and understanding that love aids the believer in becoming more like God in character and conduct. As we understand His love, we become more and more like Him. So all that to say, I have a question for you as you think about this. Do you see your need for spiritual growth? Do you see your need for spiritual growth? Brothers and sisters, there's never a point in your life, in my life, where you should be okay with where we're at spiritually. Never get there. The Bible does not know a Christian who is stagnant in his growth. But I can dare say as we are looking at this passage already as we're, I'm talking about different complex things and perhaps you're overwhelmed. But just think with me. Do we see the importance of spiritual growth? Of becoming more like God? Of understanding who He is? Of understanding His love? The complexity of those so complex and vast and so in ways that we cannot understand but we're still called to understand. Do you see how important spiritual growth is? We're not called to just to sit in a pew on a Sunday morning and listen to a sermon. You and I are called to be more like Christ, to grow in Him. 
be strengthened in, our, in ourselves so that we can understand Him to be more like Him? Do you acknowledge your need for spiritual growth? I need it. And you need it as well. So how are we going to be the church of God? We need to acknowledge our need for spiritual growth. Secondly, recognize His power. Verse 20. This is the, the start of the doxology. Paul is ending his prayer here as he's, he's prayed. In chapter 1, another, another prayer of his, he's winding things up. He prays with this great doxology, this great praise of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Paul notes a couple things in this, this great closing prayer. He notes that God is able. God is able. Now him to Him who is able. The book of Jude has this similar doxology. It says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. The word able means to possess capability, whether because of personal or external factors, for experiencing or doing something. In other words, God can do it because He is able. And this is descriptive of God. This isn't, this isn't describing something God could do. But what Paul is saying is he's saying God is not able to in, in, in what He does. He's not only able in what He does, but also in who He is. God, by definition, is able. So when we talk about ability, we talk about ability to do, to do different things, whether we play sports or uh, pursue a career. God is the definition of ability. He is able to do those things by His very nature. And what is He able to do? Notice Paul lists a couple of things. God can do anything beyond even beyond request or imagination. That, that phrase, exceedingly abundantly above, the, the idea is, is, is far above anything that we could potentially come up with. Can't be measured. Anything that we could ask or claim or make a request for, God will do a far abundant even that. The greatest thing that you, can, you and I can ever ask for, God is so much more able to do far above even that. The word ask here means to, to ask with a, a claim or intent of receiving what is asked for. It's ex expecting a favorable answer. I kind of illustrate it this way. Uh, Josiah is very active in our home, and he likes to ask for different things. And oftentimes he'll come to me or he'll come to Mary and he'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And our word, we use sign language with him, and the word for please is this, and he'll do this. Like, and he's pointing. He's wants whatever he's pointing at. And there are times where we give it to him, right? We, uh, you know, whether it be a drink of water, whether it be something, a snack or something like that. But there are times where we can't give him what he wants, but he still requests it. He still asks for it. He still goes like this and, come on, Dad, come on, Mom, give it to me. He, he expects that he's going to get what he's asked for, even though he doesn't get it all the time. But what Paul is doing here, he's saying anything that we can ask God for and expect to get, he can do that. And oh, by the way, he can do far above that. 
Not only can, could, could, can he do things in, uh, that are far above our asking ability, he can do things far above our thinking ability. The word think means to, to form an idea about something. So to sum it up, God is more than able to do so much more than we at our best could come up with verbally or cognitively. God is able, by his very nature of ability, to do more than we could even think of. You know, there's the old saying, can God lift a rock so heavy he can, you know, create a rock he can, could, uh, if God could create a rock so heavy, could he, could he even lift it? Something along those lines. Yeah, God could. But the point is not to ask theoretical questions. The point is to, to impress us and to awe us at the ability of God. Even the greatest thing that you and I could even imagine, God is able to do that and even more. And maybe in, our, in your hearts and minds, you've, you've had a tough week. And I know for, for some of us in this, this room, the, the sorrow in our hearts of losing a loved one is great. And, and we, 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 tend to, we tend to just don't know how we're going to make it through or I just can't even process what's going on, but I can tell you now that our God is able to do far above than we could ask or think. Our God is able to comfort in a greater way than we could ever hope to be comforted by. Our God is able to do and give us peace greater than we could ever imagine. And that ability comes from his power. Now God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us. The word works means to, to put something into operation, one's capabilities into operation, and here is the power of God. So God, by his power, is, is working out what he's able to do, but it's the same power that works in you and me, right? In us, the same power that propels God to accomplish unfathomable acts is the same power that is working in the life of you and me who believe in him. Jump back to verse 16. They would grant you according to the riches of glory to be strengthened with might, with power. Don't think of God as being having just so much power that he just does what he wants on for his own glory. It's the same power that is at work in us. God is, God is powerful enough to do his own desires and wills and the same power that he works for his own purposes. He is at work in you and me. We do not have an insignificant, a powerless God. We have a powerful God with the same power that works and does things beyond our imagination or request is the same God who uses that power to work in your life and mine. And that leads me to ask this question, and this is a challenge for me. How big is your God? How big is your God? And, 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 and I know, and I've thinking upon these past few years in my life, there were tendencies to put God in a box, right? To say God only can work in this situation, and there is absolutely no way that God can work in my life. 
There's no way God can do this. I just, I'm just so overwhelmed, God. I can't get through this. I'm just so struggling so much. I have this fear. I have this, this desperate situation going on. How, God, how can you work? He is able. Far above what we could even despair or think of. So if I have a God who is able above what I can ask or what I can think, why do I put him in a box? Don't put him in a box. How big is your God? The answer is you have a God who is more than able to crash through your circumstances and to change your life to what he wants for you. So when you come to him and you, 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 are, you are hurting, you are discouraged, you are troubled, do not be afraid to ask the big things. God, would you change my, my husband's life? God, he's, he's, he's drunk all the time. He's, he doesn't follow you. He's doing all these things. God, would you change him? Expect him to do that. God, would you work in this person's life? They're hurting. They're sorrowful. God, would you, would you do a, a redeeming work in their life? Expect him to respond. God, I am hurting. I don't know how I'm going to make it. I feel like I'm at my end. Would you redeem me? Would you crash through my circumstance and make me whole again? Ask, because he's more than able to do it. How big is your God? Lastly, as we seek to be the church, last thing we can practice is to give him all the glory. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice that it's His glory alone. To Him. Exclusivity here. Again, Jude uses the same language in Jude 25. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. It is exclusively His glory, His praise. God does not share His glory with others because He alone deserves it, and therefore we must give it to Him. The praise belongs to Him. Be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. God has a right to be praised, not only for what He does, but also for who He is. Notice that that Paul doesn't say to Him be glory because He's done this and this and this. He's already talked about it. He spent three chapters talking about what God has done, and he sums it up in verse 21. Because of what God has done, and because of who He is, praise Him, glorify Him, because it belongs to Him. Where is this praise to occur? It resounds in the church and is given through Christ Jesus forever. In the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In Christ Jesus refers to how God receives praise. He receives it because of what, is, of what Christ has done. And, and what has Christ done? We just, again, we've talked for three chapters on this. How He has, has brought us peace he, is, he has given us every spiritual blessing, chapter 1. He's predestined us through Christ. All these things that Christ has done, God is to be praised for. And we as a church do that. We praise the work of Christ on our behalf. And, Christ, and God receives that praise. So we praise Him as, as we've sung, 
As we're listening to the word, as we're praying, we, we pray in his name, and God gets that glory, God gets that praise, and we praise him for that. And this praise resounds forever, throughout all ages, to all generations, forever and ever. Another translation reads, throughout all ages, world without end. It refers to all eternity, so no matter the time frame, whether it is in this age or the age to come, until eternity ends, God is to be praised. And Paul ends the prayer with this little statement that we all say at the ends of our prayers, amen. It's a prayer, it's an affirmation, literally mean, let it be so. Let it be done. Let God be praised. Are you giving God the glory he so rightly deserves? Are you praising him with your life? Are you praising him with your lips? The one who does far above what you can ask or think. The one to whom glory and praise belong. Are you glorifying him? In your pain, in your sorrow? When you don't know what to do, do you praise him? Do you glorify him? In your joy, in your success, in your rejoicing, do you glorify him? In your anger and in your, in your struggle, in your desperation, do you glorify him? You know, sometimes it's easy to glorify God, isn't it? When things are going well, when things are, are progressing, you're making good progress in life, it's easy to glorify God. So much harder when things aren't going so well. When you're in pain, when you're in sorrow, when you're in grief, when you're in struggle. But no matter the circumstance in our lives, we are to glorify Him and give Him all the glory because He deserves it. As members of the body of Christ, we are the church. But sometimes we forget that, don't we? We get so involved, we get so distraught, distracted, that we forget who we are. How do we recover that? I, th I think these three practices will aid us. Acknowledge your need of spiritual growth. We all need to grow, me included. I, the pastor who stands up here and preaches every Sunday, need spiritual growth. We recognize His power. God is able to do even far above anything that we could come up with or ask. And we give Him all the glory. He deserves it. May we practice these things, continuing to do them until the day He returns.